Teach. You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. Turn your attention to uh, the reading of God's Word. <laughs> okay, 2 Samuel 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There are two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from the cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus the Lord says, The God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against you, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin, you shall not die. Psalm 51 Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. We have been walking our way through the life of David this semester in RUF, and uh, tonight we get to a topic under the heading of um, what is ordinary to the Christian life, and and we're going to come up to an issue tonight that I think is probably the most misunderstood realities about Christian spirituality, and yet at the same time, the most vital and necessary for your well-being, and that is the subject of repentance. I don't know how that word hits you. When I first hear that word, I just think of like whenever I would drive through the south and you have like the giant billboards on the side of the road that's just all black with giant white print that just says, repent. And it just feels like a threat. I mean, it just feels like someone's trying to hurt you. And so what I want to do tonight is just show you that uh, it, it doesn't mean typically what we think it means. And so I really, I just want to jump in and, and look at two realities about this concept. The beginning of repentance and then the elements of repentance. So where does it start and then what does it actually look like? The beginning, the elements. So let's start with the beginning. And if you were here last week or even if you're remotely familiar with the life of David, here's what happened last week. David as king um, had sex with another man's wife. Her name was Bathsheba. She got pregnant. 
he had her husband murdered to cover it up, and then he married her. And it looked like he covered it all up. It looks like he got away with it. But of course, the Lord sees everything. And so in verse 1 of the passage that we just read, God sends this guy named Nathan, who is basically David's pastor, to David to confront him. And notice, look look at verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. God is the one chasing David down as he's beginning to walk down a very dark road. And as Nathan confronts him, he tells him this story in verses 1 through 4. And I'll just summarize it. The story is this. Nathan goes to David and says, hey, David, there's this city. And there's two guys in this city. One guy's like crazy rich and he has like a million animals. And the other guy is really poor. And he only has one little lamb. And he loves this little lamb. He pets it and feeds it. He cuddles with it. He treats it like it's his child. And the man who had tons of animals and tons of money came to that guy, took the lamb out of his arms, went home, butchered it, barbecued it, and served it for a party that he was throwing. What do you think we should do, David? And David's response, I think it's in uh, verse 5, he starts to seethe. He's infuriated with this story. And he just kind of shouts out, the man who does this, who did this, deserves to die. And then Nathan looks at him in verse 7 and says, you're the man. Not, you're the man, bro, but like, like I'm talking about you. The story's about you, David. You're the crazy, power-hungry monster that took something that wasn't yours and killed her husband. And David, in that moment, goes white. His soul is pierced. He, the, the weight of what he has done hits him because he had been trying to keep something secret, hidden, and now it is exposed. And that feeling is so awful to have done something that you didn't want anybody to find out about, and there it is right in front of your face. I, I heard this, uh, I watched this, I guess it was a YouTube, a YouTube's clip um, a, a couple of years ago where Louis C.K., famous comedian, was on the Conan show as a guest, and he tells this story, if you've seen this, it's an amazing story, he tells the story about when he adopted a dog. He adopted a 70-pound animal, and he took it to the vet to have the vet tell him what to do with it, and the vet's going over all kind of dog ownership protocols, and he says, oh, by the way, you cannot let this dog eat chocolate. If a dog eats chocolate and it digests, it will kill it. So if it, if it eats it, you've got to get it to throw up really quick. And the way that you do that is you, you serve it hydrogen peroxide because that will foam up in the dog's stomach and then it will throw up the chocolate. So sure enough, six months after he visits this vet, Louis C.K. comes home and the dog had just gotten into like this giant like brick of dark Polish chocolate that he had left out. So he freaks out and he panics because he doesn't have hydrogen peroxide in the house. And he's thinking, I, I've got to fix this dog. So he puts the dog on a leash through New York City. He's running through the streets of New York City to get to the closest pharmacy, Put, you know, kind of ties the dog up, runs inside, gets the hydrogen peroxide, comes out, and then he's like, okay, how do I get the dog to drink this? Because it's not like you can just hand, hand it to the dog, like just, you know, drink this. So he, he tries to grab it by his head and kind of pours a little bit in its snout, and the dog goes, and he, he grabs it again, tries to pour it in, and does it again. So he 
wraps his arms around it. He's, bare, he's wrestling because the dog is now thrashing. He's like wrestling it like an alligator. He's trying to pour the thing into it. And the dog now is soaked with hydrogen peroxide. And the dog starts snarling at him and trying to bite him. And Louis C.K. says he starts punching the dog, trying to get the dog down so he can pour the hydrogen peroxide down his throat. And he looks up and a hundred people... <laughs> are just staring at him, horrified, and he's, and he's punching his dog and shouting at everybody, I'm trying to save its life, and he's punching it. Now, as he reflects back on that story, it's amazing to hear him tell it. He says, can you imagine what happened from the point of view from, of the dog? Because it looked like, hey, we're going on a walk through the streets. Like, this is awesome. And then all of a sudden, you go bananas and just start beating me and trying to me to get stuff. By the way, the dog did throw up and survived. But also, you know, so from the point of view of the dog and the point of view of everybody on the street, it looks like Louis C.K. was trying to kill the dog, but what was he doing? He's trying to save the dog. And I think that's such an amazing story because when it when God confronts us with our sin from our point of view, it looks and feels like God's trying to kill us. It does not feel like he's trying to save us. It does not feel like he is loving us. It feels like he's punishing us. When you've done something and you're caught and you're exposed and your life begins to spin out as a result, it feels, God, why would you let this happen? It doesn't feel like his love. It feels like he's punishing you. But it is the Lord's kindness and love and grace to you to confront you. It is. When I was in high school, I was Mr. Christianity. I was uh, the Young Life president. I was the leader of FCA. I was a leader in my youth group. Like, every, like my identity in high school is like I'm the good Christian kid. In my senior year of high school, I started dating a girl, and we began to do things physically that I now horribly regret. But the thing is, nobody knew about it. I didn't talk to my friends about it. Uh, anytime we would... Um, do what we would do. It would always be secret. It would be whenever parents weren't home. And so I really was my senior year of high school living very, a very radically double life. Publicly, Christian all-star. Privately, doing things I would want nobody to know about. And I remember it was the summer, the start of the summer before my freshman year in college. My young life leader, Brian Summerall, invited me to come over to his house, and I remember driving to his house on La Sabrina Drive, picking up some Wendy's on the way there, and in his house, he had this, he, he, his little personal office was like towards the back of the house, and we went back to the back of the house, and we're sitting in his office and just eating and kind of catching up, and towards the end of the meal, he looks at me and he says, Matt, are you having sex with your girlfriend? And in that moment, I just, I couldn't breathe. It's like I instantly suffocated, my heart started racing, I got sick in my stomach. And thankfully, I could tell him no, but I did go on to tell him everything that we were doing. And so for the next 30, 45 minutes, I'm just weeping my way through this conversation. I'm feeling embarrassed about the fact that how much I'm weeping. It was just awful. It's awful. Because this is like my spiritual um, hero. I wanted him to think like I'm, I'm beyond and above like what everybody else struggles with. I want him and everyone else to think that I'm like the good Christian guy, but I'd been caught. I'd been exposed. And it felt awful. Like that conversation was the worst. Like I just remember driving home feeling undone. 
And as I look back on that particular incident from my story, that conversation was God loving me. That conversation was God saving me. Because that relationship that I had was unbelievably toxic and horrible. I didn't know it at the time. But God used this person to expose me, to confront me, purely out of love. And in the moment, it didn't feel like it. It I didn't go home experiencing God's love. It felt like God was tearing my life apart. And as I look back, I know without a doubt that was God's love and kindness to me. That's the beginning of repentance. It's when God confronts you, exposes you with your sin. And that confrontation might look like a lot of different things. It might look like a conversation with a friend, with a parent, with a mentor, with somebody older that just sits down with you and says, Hey, help me understand this part of your life. Tell me about X. And it just feels like, I don't want to tell you about X. And in that moment, that is God loving you and saving you from yourself. It might actually just look like this moment where you're hearing this passage. And maybe it's this moment right now where you're realizing for the first time, I'm destroying my life and I'm stuck and I'm silent and I can't tell anybody about it. And maybe it's this moment. Coming to RUF tonight, is God pursuing you, exposing you, confronting you? And that it's time to come clean. Because no doubt, some of y'all are doing things that you know are wrong. You don't want to stop doing them. You don't want to talk about it. You don't want to talk to your friends about it. You don't want to talk to God about it. But you're just stuck in the silence of the double life that you're living. And it would be God's kindness to confront you, to expose you. In that confrontation, it might look like just getting caught. Getting caught in the act. Getting caught in a lie. Somebody finds out what you've been looking at on your phone. Somebody finds out about the abortion. Somebody finds out about how you're cheating your way through your classes. And in that moment, it feels like God is just crushing you. But what he is doing is he's saving you. Repentance begins with the loving confrontation of God. But what what does repentance actually then look like then? So let's look at the elements of repentance. At the beginning of repentance is God's loving, gracious confrontation of your sin. What are the elements of it? Well, look at how David responds. Uh, Look at verse 13. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Finally, for the first time, David's now being honest. He admits, he comes clean, I have sinned against the Lord. No more hiding, no more covering it up. And of course he knows he's also sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, Uriah's family, the army, the nation as a whole. But he recognizes God is the one that I have sinned against the most. And then... At some point, he goes off and he writes in his journal. And he writes a, a, he prays a response to this moment. And his journal is now what we call Psalm 51. Maybe he wrote it that night. I don't know. Maybe he wrote it a couple weeks later. But Psalm 51 is his response to this confrontation. And I wish we had more time to look at it because it is so stinking good. It is so rich. But I'm just going to highlight a couple of verses just for the sake of time. Uh, the first element of repentance is this. Hatred of your sin. That's it. Hatred of your sin. Grieving, aching, not over the fact that you got caught, not over the consequences that are going to fall out, uh, not of the way that this might impact your reputation, but of the actual sin that you've done. You ache over it. You hurt over it. Uh, some some uh, people, some theologians refer to this as contrition. 
where repentance begins with confrontation and then it moves into contrition. Look at a couple of verses from Psalm 51. Look at verse 3. David writes, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He's saying, I see my sin and it's, it's just all over me. It's like chicken pox. I can't get it off. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I mean, that, is, that is crazy strong language. Have you ever said, what I am doing right now or what I have done is evil? That's a big word. It's not just like I'm, it was an error in judgment. I've made some mistakes. It's, this is, this is evil what I'm doing. Look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. David's saying, I am heartbroken over this. So you put all these together. David is looking at his sin and saying, it is ugly, it is poisonous, it is evil, and I'm I'm broken over it. I hate this. I heard a story uh, a couple of years ago. There was uh, a pastor that was kind of giving a lecture to all the different RUF campus ministers in the country. He was talking about sanctification, which is really just the process of growing in Christ. And he told this story that was so, I just have not been able to forget it because it's so good. It's It's a true story about this farmer in like the highlands of Scotland. Uh, this farmer was a devoted atheist. He had a very in, uh, well-known uh, temper problem where he would explode in anger in his farm. And he would just like kick animals. There's a lot of animal cruelty in this sermon. I'm sorry, but he would like he would kick animals, and he'd be in the barn and lose his temper, and, like kick the dog or something. And so, at some point, there's like this traveling preacher that comes through his region, and for whatever reason, this guy goes and hears this guy preach the gospel. And Jesus saves him. He, his, his heart is open and he responds to the gospel in faith. Like this devoted atheist farmer guy becomes a Christian and goes back home and starts to live the Christian life. And maybe like two or three weeks later, he's out in the barn and something happens and he loses his temper and he kicks like a pig or something. And he runs back inside. His wife is in the kitchen. He sits down at the table. His head is in his hands. And he's so broken over this. And he goes, it it didn't work. It didn't work. I gave my life to Jesus and I'm just the same old angry man that I've always been. And she looks at him and she says, look at yourself. You are weeping over your anger. You are heartbroken over your anger. You have never responded to your anger like this before, ever. The fact that you're so distraught and undone over your anger shows that God is at work in you. And when I heard that story, it was so life-giving to me because I don't know if you're anything like me, but there are areas of my life where I keep trying to change, keep trying to stop, and I keep failing, keep messing up the same thing over and over and over. And it's so frustrating because it feels like, I should be beyond this by now. I should stop. So I, I, like, I should have this like, taken care of by now. I'm a pastor, for goodness sake. I shouldn't still be struggling in this area. And the ache and the grief over my life, as the story has said, that's proof of the fact that the Spirit is at work. That ache, that frustration that you feel, that angst inside of you that says, I hate this, why do I keep doing this? That is proof that the Spirit is at work in you. Because if the Spirit was not at work in you, you would feel comfortable with it. You would be at home in your sin. You would be numb to it. And sadly, that's where some of you are tonight. Where you are doing things you don't 
want to do, but you don't care anymore. Your heart is hardened. It's desensitized. And I think a personal application for you from this passage would be to pray that God breaks your heart. To actually pray and say, God, my heart is numb. It is hard. I don't care about what I'm doing. Holy Spirit, I need you to tenderize my heart and to break me. That is a dangerous prayer to pray because I think God will actually do it. But here's what I want you to see. Holiness feels a lot more like brokenness, doesn't it? Like the holier you become, the less holy you feel. That's how counterintuitive the the ordinary Christian life really is. The holier you become, the more broken you feel. And that's the, that, that is the first step of repentance. It's contrition. It's hatred over your sin. But true repentance does not just stop there. Because if you just stopped there, you would just be self-pity, shame, depression. True repentance keeps going. And the second element of repentance is this. Going to Jesus. That's it. L- look at verse um, 1. David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David comes before the Lord and he says, I need mercy. And he appeals to something. Why why should he get mercy from God? He says, Have mercy on me according to how good of a person I've been up until this point. Does he say that? No. He doesn't say, God, have mercy on me according to the promise that I'm about to make. That is, I'll never do that again, and I'm going to clean up my act, and I'm going to get really, really good. No. Look at it again. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. He appeals to the only thing that he has in this moment, which is God's unrelenting, unstoppable love for him. That's all he has. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your love. Because here's the deal. David knew the Bible, and he knew what this sin of his deserved. He knew that Leviticus 20, verse 10, reads this. If a man commits adultery with his wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. When David comes clean to Nathan and says, I have sinned, That is an extremely expensive confession. He is expecting Nathan to look at him and say, King David and the wife of Uriah the Hittite are to be executed. That would be the biblical response. But you know what Nathan says to him? Look at verse 13. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. That is the Bible summarized in one little phrase. The Lord has taken, has put away your sin. You shall not die. David could never have understood those words of what, how God would actually do that. That one day God would literally take David's sin from him and put it on himself. Put it on his own son so that his son is buried underneath the very weight and the wrath of God in David's place. God takes his sin off of David puts it on his son, and Jesus, who deserves eternal life, gets crushed on the cross, and David, who deserves to die, lives. The cross is the demonstration of God's unrelenting, unstoppable love for actual people that have really screwed up their life. The cross is the expression of his love. And so the second element of repentance is just going to Jesus. 
Going to Jesus for mercy and for love, knowing that when you come to him, you do not get a lecture, you do not get scolded, you do not get shamed, you get embraced and kissed and forgiven, and he sets a table for you and he throws a party for you. That is what repentance is. Do you know what a, 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 a Christian is? A Christian is not somebody that sins less. A Christian is somebody who repents more. As you repent, as you keep coming to Jesus over and over and over, two things happen in your heart and in your life. You begin to see simultaneously that you have a big need for a Savior. And simultaneously that you have a big Savior for your need. And when those two things come together, this third element of repentance happens. And I'll just say this in passing for the sake of time. And it's this. Commitment. It's you saying, out of gratitude for what God has done for me, I will now obey this one who has been unbelievably gracious. I'm going to commit myself to him. That's repentance. Confrontation. Contrition. Coming to Jesus. Commitment. Conclusion. Let's conclude. I heard the story that uh, of this woman that for most of her Christian life had a really bad view of who God was. She viewed God as this angry boss that was demanding and angry all the time. And she figured out that the reason why for most of her Christian life she thought of God this way, it, it traced back to this incident, this particular incident that happened in her childhood. When she was younger, her and her little sister would take their dad's uh, white dress shirts and hang them on the clothesline in the backyard. And one time, for whatever reason, I guess the clothesline was full, she took her dad's white sweat, uh, not sweatshirt, dress shirt, and put it over the wheelbarrow to let it dry. Only problem was the wheelbarrow was rusty, and so the, the shirt just got ruined. The dad comes home from work, sees the ruined shirt, and just like explodes in anger, severely punishes her for messing up the shirt. And so she said that, mo- that moment was so pivotal for her. She lived the rest of her life thinking that's what God is like. God as our father, that's how he responds to us. And so here's what she wrote. And I wonder if this resonates with anybody. She says this, my entire Christian life has been oppressive. I didn't know how to live day by day without an overwhelming sense of failure to perform up to what God, what I thought God demanded. With that came a sense of God being disappointed and even disgusted with me. Well, the woman woman keeps going in her Christian life and she gets around some good gospel teaching and she begins to deconstruct her understanding of God and she comes to understand, whoa, God's not like this at all, what I've thought about him all this time. And so one time she's meeting, she's sitting down and talking to her pastor one afternoon, and she's telling her pastor, I think the reason why for much of my Christian life I've had such a crazy bad view of God is because this shirt story from my childhood. And the pastor looks at her and says, I think that's right. I mean, God is our heavenly father, so how you experience your father on earth can sometimes, you can kind of, you know, blend those two things together. So let's do this. Let's rewind the tape to your that moment in your childhood, and let's, let's replay it, but this time, what would God have done? What, what would your heavenly father have done if he came home from work and he sees that you've put the shirt out and it's ruined the shirt? How, how do you think your heavenly father would respond? And so she thinks about it for a second and she says, well, I think because he's good and loving, like he wouldn't care about the shirt. He would just embrace me and hug me and say, it's okay, 
like, I forgive you, it's okay. And the pastor looked at her and he nodded and he says, that's good. That's good. But I think he would have done more. I think he would have taken the shirt and put it on. And then he would have worn it the next day to work. And when people asked him about it, with all these stains and rust all over it, he would say, let me tell you about my daughter and how special she is to me. That is what the God of the Bible is actually like. He's like good beyond our wildest dreams. That he would take your mess-ups, what is wrong with you, take it off of you and put it on him, that he would wear it himself. And that he would embrace, kiss, receive, and throw a party for crazy bad people like David. And crazy bad people like me. And crazy bad people like you. And so here's um, how I want to end. For those of you that are stuck, stuck in your sin, for those of you that are trapped in silence and you can't talk about it and you refuse to talk about it, for those of you that are numb to what you're doing, to those of you that feel self-righteous enough to actually believe I don't have anything wrong with me, the invitation for all of us is to repent and to come and experience the, the overwhelming love and mercy of the embrace of our Heavenly Father. That is the invitation for you and for me tonight. Let me pray. Father, I do pray that you would give us eyes to see how good, how gracious, how loving you truly are. That we would stop hiding, that we would run home to your arms and experience your kindness, your forgiveness, your empowering spirit in us that transforms us knowing that we have been kissed by someone that we can't even fathom how gracious you are. I do pray, Father, that you would give us the courage and the ability to repent and that that would be sweetness to us. Break our hearts so that that we may find our home in you. And we would ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.